We're gonna, we're in Athens today, and I I want to uh, try to give you a feel for Athens, um, as best as can be done from this great distance. Um, did you know how Athens got its name? You know, and we have boring names in America. New York, that's like the city of York, just newer. You know, Cleveland is after a person. We name cities after people or new whatever the old place was. Um, but Athens is not that way. And even the way that, that Athens is named gives you an insight into the city that Paul's about to walk into this morning. When Athens was, uh, they're trying to decide uh, the name, it had a lot to do with who was the patron deity. What, what kind of deific person was going to uh, be the patron of the city. And um, as the story goes, there were two gods, or a god and a goddess, who kind of wanted to have Athens. Poseidon and Athena. They were kind of vying for who was going to get the city. And so the people of Athens said, uh, okay, well, let's see what you got. Like, show us something. Because uh, they were going to pick a god. So Poseidon takes his trident, stabs it in the earth, and this fountain of salt water comes up and kind of to show his power over, over the waters and over the navy, which should matter to the people of Athens because Athens was a coastal city of a great navy. The, the Peloponnesian War between the Athens and the Spartans was really only preserved by the great navy of Athens. And so that was supposed to be alluring to those people, but Athena responded by pulling up an olive tree out of the earth, which represents peace and justice. And the people of Athens, because they're so great and wonderful... They said, we'll take Athena because of peace and justice. And, and that's their story. Back in the day when Paul, if, you say, if he said, well, how did this come to be named Athens? He would have said, well, there is this. People would have told him that. That somehow there is this city. Athens is one of the oldest cities in the world. It's one of the, it's one of the great cities, if not the great city of Western thought. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Pericles. Demosthenes, a bunch of E's that I don't even know how to fully pronounce. They all come out of Athens. Our, our governmental system springs out of Athens. Uh, the Roman law and government sprung out of Athens. It's the cradle of Western civilization. And it has always seemed to be self-aware of that. Athens has always seemed to know that it is what it is. It's one of those odd things of a, of a people in a city that they seem to know very accurately how significant they are throughout all time. And it's odd that they can have this kind of monopoly, seeming monopoly on truth and justice and politics and government, that all of this can, can live and be alive and yet cohabitate with Poseidon sticking a trident in the ground and a fountain of salt water coming up. How they merge those things so comfortably is... Uh, it's strange to us, but it's because of the way that the myths and the idols and the gods have been alive. I'll tell you, this, this is a story. Um, it's a play written by an, a man named Aeschylus. He wrote three plays. It's a trilogy. See, they even had trilogies back in the day, sequels. And uh, it, it has something to do with this morning. I, I want to give this to you so that you feel Athens. Um, Aeschylus writes this play. It starts with this gentleman named Agamemnon who... If you know of the Trojan War, Agamemnon was kind of the, he was king of, the, of Argos. If you ever heard of Jason the Argonauts, that's kind of where this is coming from. Agamemnon was the great king who kind of led the Greek states and peoples to rescue Helen of Troy back, or rescue 
and defeat Troy. And so while he's gone for this long battle, his wife, Clymenestra, she has an adulterous affair with this guy, and, and she's pretty rotten. And, and also she's mad at Agamemnon because Agamemnon, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter uh, at some point in the story. So she's been out of shape, and she's dead set that when Agamemnon finally comes home, she's going to get him. So Agamemnon comes home, and she gets him, according to Aeschylus. She kills him. It's a very scary play. And she chops him up into pieces. Well, that happens, and the, uh, Agamemnon and Clymenestra had two other children, Orestes and Electra. And Orestes is the son, and when he hears about it, and of course he hears about it from Apollo, because that's how it works, when Apollo kind of lets him know, hey, Agamemnon died at the hands of your mother, he uh, kind of is charged, and he makes a pact with his friend, and he, he goes up and finds his mother, and he kills her, because that's how it works in, in the Greek times. Well, when that happens, there are these things called furies. They're like these monstrous screaming beings. And their charge in life is to torment people who are guilty of matricide or patricide. It's, it's killing your mom or your dad. So the alarm goes out and all the furies rise up and they begin to hound and haunt Orestes. And they chase him all the way until the Oracle of Delphi. And he's hiding out in the Oracle of Delphi. He's in solitude. This is a play. This is a really good play. He's hiding out there. And you guys are like, what's going on? I'm getting somewhere. Trust me. He's hiding out in the Oracle of Delphi. And you have these, you have these furies like scratching at the door kind of thing. Well, Apollo kind of comes in and he feels somewhat responsible because after all, he did let Orestes know and he likes Orestes. And so he puts the furies into a stupor. And they fall asleep. And as soon as they fall asleep, he says, Orestes, quick, to Athens. Why do you go to Athens? Because the people of Athens are great and wonderful. And Athens is a great city, and it always seems to know it. And so uh, Orestes flies to Athens. The ghost of Clymenestra rises out of the grave and wakes the furies and says, Go! And they, and they chase after Orestes, and they're ha- haunting after him. And it's a very scary story. And the legend goes, there was a woman in the first row of this play, the first time it aired. She miscarried and died. It was so terrifying. And Orestes gets to Athens, and he's there, and the Furies are right upon him. Ah! And Athena, Athena, because she's great, and because the people of Athens are great, and that's where justice and the cradle of Western civilization and all that, she says, simmer down now, people. And she puts the Furies over here, and they're real mad. They are, in fact, Fury us. Um, and they're concerned. And then Apollo shows up over here, and they're saying, he has to die. And he's saying, now, hold on one second. His, the mother killed the father. So what's going on here? And what she does is she says, what we'll do is we'll have court. And she goes up onto this hill of Ares called the Areopagus. And she, she, this is the story of the Areopagus. She assigns 12 men to be judges in the Areopagus to hear this case. And as they hear this case, the Furies are arguing one side and Apollo is arguing the other for, in the defense of Orestes. And the men of Athens, because they're so high-minded and because Athens is so great and so good and it's the greatest city ever, uh, they listen. And when the verdict comes, it's six for and six against. And Athena is required to make the tiebreaker and she votes on behalf of Orestes' life. And he gets to live. The Furies are even more furious And they say, we're going to strike down, strike the people of Athens sick with illness. And Athena says, don't do that. That's not nice. Instead, how about you help me protect Athens? And they say, oh, that sounds great. And so she makes them these golden thrones, and they live underground. Because they're ugly, they have to be underground. And they live underground, and 
they changed their name, and that's the end um, of, the, of the trilogy play. I say all that because we're, today we're going to be in the Areopagus, Mars Hill, the Hill of Ares, and it's a place that was founded on this idea of justice, but it has no qualms mixing the reality of truth with the mythology of the time. This is the world that we're going to see when Paul walks into Athens. He doesn't even intend to be there. He's going to walk into Athens and it says, when he sees the idols, he's so distressed because of the city. This is a city that is absolutely immersed in myth and cults and idolatry and spirituality. Let's read and let's see. I'm going to start in verse 16. By the way, you would pass no test in lit class if, if you didn't read the play and just went off of what I said. It's very rough. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. This city um, is in many ways like our own. There's one difference uh, I, I have to remark, because we're going to talk a little bit today about how do we or don't we talk about our faith with others. That's going to be, I hope, it's more of an instru- a message of instruction. I, I hope it is a message of instruction for you this morning, but one big difference between Athens and today that I think we need to say up front is, in Athens, they love to talk about religion, and today, we don't. And uh, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, but I do recognize that this is a, a pretty significant difference, is it seems like Satan, as the years have gone on, has, has kind of wielded his craft even better and better, and now he's created a world that looks like Athens, but one doesn't want to talk about religion, which is a more troubling position. But in this occasion, in this city, uh, Paul comes into the city. It's not part of his missionary journey. Remember, he was stolen away by night from Berea to avoid imprisonment. And he ends up in Athens, and he's only there because he's waiting for people to show up so that then they can get on with the business. But he's there kind of by himself. He, you can imagine he's kind of roaming around the city, eating his heroes, looking at stuff. And he's impacted by what he sees. It says he sees the idolatry of the city, and he's distressed, and as a function of that, he speaks. That's how it works. He sees, he's distressed, and he speaks. You see the verse there. It says, when he was waiting in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues. And he goes customarily like he does. He starts in the synagogue, and then he kind of ends up in the marketplace Reasoning, And he has this license here because all they ever do is talk about new ideas. And there's that parenthetical about Athens that's kind of 
I think it's a little bit negative. It feels that way when you read it. But you have this, 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 this pattern. He, he sees, he feels, and then he speaks. And, and as, as you're thinking this morning about why you do or don't talk about spiritual things with others, um, I'd like to kind of uh, place it in the setting of this see, feel, speak. Why don't, why don't you? I'm, I'm not trying to beat you up this morning. I'm just trying to walk you along and encourage you um, on how you could, maybe how more effectively we can speak about the Lord. And I think it might have something to do with this see, feel, speak pattern. Like we might say, one of the reasons we don't talk about Jesus is we don't see some of the things that Paul sees here. If you don't see it, why would you talk about it? If it's happening on the other side of the world, well, God obviously is not holding you to it. I'm not, I mean, certainly there's a certain naivety that the Lord understands. You're not going to always speak about the Lord on every issue because you don't even know some of the issues that are abounding around us. Right? And so that's what I'm talking about. But it's not enough to say, I simply didn't see it, if the reason you didn't see it is because you turned your head the other way. See, if you're not talking about Jesus because you're choosing not to see something, well, that's different altogether. That's altogether different. I, the Lord has a very different opinion. If, if, so the reason if you're not speaking is because you're not feeling. And if you're not feeling because you're choosing not to look at things that are difficult and challenging, well, I think the Lord has a word there for you. That, that we don't have a right as Christians to turn our head to the right when there's something going on to the left. We're called to stare things, stare at things for what they are, and then to allow those things to move us, and hopefully to move us into action. But we, we do this, don't we? I mean, this is, after all, uh, kind of the suburban contract. Right? Many of us live in neighborhoods and settings where the goal is to remove us into some kind of environment where, where the darkness and the brokenness around us is not visible or present. And that is, that's the great aspiration of the neighborhood. Right? That's, we've been flying to neighborhoods for decades, trying to kind of create an environment. And we can, let's stop blaming it on our kids. Stop saying you just want to create a safe place for your kids. It's more than that. We know that. It, we're trying to go to a place where our existence is not met. We don't meet in the face with things that would move us. And when that doesn't happen, we don't speak. That's one reason we don't speak is because we don't see, because we choose not to see. There's another reason we might not see, and that's because you might not have eyes to see. Though your foolishness or your darkness may kind of blot out your eyes. There's things in my life, and I'm sure in your life, that I see, but I don't see them the way God sees them because I'm still so human. There's things I see that kind of tickle my fancy when, in fact, they should break my heart. And so I think a first step in um, being more Christ-like in the way we speak is to pray to the Lord, Lord, give me the will and the eyes to see what you see. Many of you who are maybe not sharing the gospel, maybe it's starting right here. Maybe you're not sharing the gospel because in your, in your circle you have so insulated yourself that the reality of the darkness of this world is beyond you. And that's not good. You see here, Paul did not expect to speak until he saw what he saw. 
But let's say, for, for instance, maybe you do in fact see. Let's say you see it correctly, you diagnose it, you see something, it, it, it's wrong and it's sinful and it's broken. Still some of us don't, don't speak about it because even though we see it, we don't feel the way God feels about it. This is a second barrier towards how we talk about the Lord. You've got to remember, effective witnessing comes from the heart. And so it, it very much is a root of seeing, feeling, and speaking. But some of us, we see things correctly, but our heart on the things is not as God's heart is. We have what you might call a um, just grow up attitude, or they're getting what they deserve attitude, or pick yourself up by your bootstraps attitude, or it's their problem, not my problem attitude. In fact, we're seeing it and we're diagnosing it, but our heart is not as Christ's heart. You know, when, when the Pharisees said, just let, the, let, what are you doing with them? Jesus said, did I come for the sick or the healthy? You know, some of us are like, they should be in prison. They're guilty. Did the Lord come to the free or to the people in prison? Were you not set free? Sometimes we don't share because we don't have a spirit of grace. We see, but the mercy of Christ is not in us. And so we see things, but we don't have an impetus by the spirit in us to kind of step down into the mess and embrace what's going on there. I'm not saying that we enable it. I'm not saying that we ignore it. I'm not saying that, that there's not a lot of bad decisions. But, you know, a lot of us have made a lot of bad decisions too, haven't we? We've made a lot of bad decisions. And maybe the only difference between a lot of us and a lot of others is that we had a massive safety net of family that caught us when we made bad decisions. What a blessing that is. Have you ever thought about that? I have generation after generation after generation of people in my life saying, this is how you ought to live. Don't do that. And when I do kind of play near the edge, they have a net that catches me saying, told you not to. There's a lot of people that don't have this. You have received so much grace. You should feel different. Maybe that's why you don't speak. And here's one last thing. Maybe you see, maybe you do in fact feel the way the Lord would have you feel, but maybe you don't speak because you don't know how to speak. Like maybe you're scared. I'm I'm scared. I was writing this sermon this week. This always happens. When you're writing a message, the Lord puts something like right smack dab in your lap to go, well, ha-ha, are you going to do it? So I'm there and I'm in a, a coffee shop and... Um, a person comes in who I knew, and um, I, I know she's uh, been challenged lately, and so I, I just asked how she was doing and how her mother was. And we kind of went on and on and on a little bit, and I said, well, I, you know, I just hope everything goes great. And she said, it's good. And she said, like, it's good to see you. I'll take all the positive energy I can get. I'm apparently positive energy. I like that. That has a good ring to it. <laughs> you know, so I sat down, and I'm like, oh, man. I'm staring at Act 17 and thinking, I'm thinking, I'm allowing this lady to walk away thinking that a Christian minister is positive energy. Am I going to do that? You know, I see it. Do I feel it? Like, oh, here's a person who's in troubled times, you know. And, and the challenge was, I myself dealt with fear and confusion and complexity and all of these things that I know you wrestle with. But, you know, I, 
it's not that hard for me to turn around and say, which I did, I know you, you know, I hear what you said about energy. I just want you to know that it's a person. That it's not energy, it's a person. And it's the Lord. And it didn't go very long from there. It kind of degraded into kind of another half speak. And I finally ended up just inviting you to a Bible study sometime. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's the pattern. I'm saying I feel it like you feel it. Like there's fear of going, I don't know if, if there's going to be negative repercussions, like what's going to happen in your job or your friendship or your workplace or whatever. Or maybe you have fear that I don't know, I don't know the word well enough that if I say it, what if I do more damage than good? I just want to encourage you this morning that God has called you to see, to feel, and to speak about. You don't have to have these massive answers. If you love Jesus, you're allowed to talk about him because he's good, and it's good news. So I want to, on the, on the outset of this message, I just want to encourage you there. As, as Christians, we've been called to see things for what they are, not to turn our head to the right or to the left, to stare at them, to feel the way God feels about them, and then to speak. And that is the power of good evangelism, if that's what you want to call it. That's the power of sharing about Jesus well, is doing that. Now let's, let's see how it's done. I'm going to read, uh, continue to read through this section, picking up in verse 22. What I want you to do is, I want, I'm going to give you a second to think of a person or people or a group that's on your heart. Like if, if I'm talking about the Seafield Speak and you're thinking, yeah, there's that person. That if I had the chance, I, I, I want you to put that person in your mind, okay? So as we're going to walk through and talk about some principles from what Paul said, I just want you to talk about them in light of, of the person who's on your heart. I will say this. If it's a close family member or a close friend, there's so many other dynamics that are at play that, uh, that that's like another couple Sundays, all right? So it's very different if it's a person you ride with on the bus to work each day versus your dad who's passing. And I understand that. But these principles nonetheless are helpful. Let's read uh, from the 22nd verse. We'll we'll read uh, to the end of the chapter. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with the justice by one by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of the men sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and another number of others. As a side note, when Apollos is defending Orestes on the Areopagus, he says this line. He's talking about the importance of Orestes' life. And he, and he says, essentially, he says, listen, we've got to deal with this because when he dies, there is no resurrection. And I, it sits with me because I'm thinking, if, you're on, if you serve in the Areopagus, you most certainly know the play of Aeschylus about the Areopagus and the fact that Apollos has been there and has spoken against the resurrection hundreds of years earlier. And that, that gives a, just a, shows you the nature of the spiritual stronghold in which, in which Paul's speaking. But, but he's speaking here. And as he's speaking, uh, we see the text about what he speaks. But I, I actually want to dissect the text. And, and instead of looking at what he said, I want to look at how it was assembled. And how we, it, we might translate that to when we talk about others. So the first thing I want, I want you to do with your person in mind is to think about the starting point. Paul's starting point. He uses an appropriate starting point here. You know, when he goes into the synagogue, he's, he drops words like Messiah and Christ and atonement. He's using those words in the synagogue because he can use that starting point. But when he steps out into the Areopagus, he backs way off. You see what his starting point is now? It's not Messiah. He doesn't use that word. It's not the seed of Abraham like he speaks in Galatians. It's not uh, the high theology of, to, to the, the Jews and Christians in Rome. It's... There is a God, and I see you're religious. That's pretty far back. He's picking an appropriate starting point. And I would just say, with your, with your person or, or people, think about the appropriate starting point. The starting point is different if your friend grew up in the church and just has backed away from the faith for the past 20 years. It's very different if he knows all the stories. It's very different if, if the person you're thinking about went to CCD but stopped going to his Catholic church at eight years old. Very different starting point. It's a very different starting point if you're speaking to someone who has just recently immigrated to the United States from a, a land that has, not, has no Christian culture or someone who's come over from Russia. They're a Russian immigrant and they've grown up in a largely secular society or a post-Christian Europe or something like that, where they don't know the stories. I remember I had a roommate when I was deployed in the war, and it was Easter time, so Ben-Hur was on TV. So watching Ben-Hur, and I said something about Abraham, and he said, who's that? And I went, you don't know who, I said, what is your problem? You don't know who Abraham is? He said, no. And I said, man, we have work to do. (laughs) And so we started a Bible study, right? He and I, we started a study, and we went all the way through, figured out who Abraham was. He's faithfully attending church today. We've got to find the right starting point. Sometimes your starting point is, well, that's how you hear it in church. Scrap that. Where are they and go to them? Okay, that's what Paul does here. There's a God and he made the whole world and everything in it. He went to Genesis 1, 1 as his starting point. The second principle that I think is useful here is is he uses simple but clear detail. 
So his, 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 the precepts that Paul says are actually fairly significant. It's fairly faithful to the Old Testament. It's the first, he, he banks on the first two commandments. He says, God made everything and everything that's in it, he made man. And then he says, he's not an idol, nor should he, is he something made by hands. It's, it's faithfully Jewish, in fact. And he has these very clear details. God made everything. God made all people. God has expectations and care and love for people. He cares about you. In the past, he's been patient. But now he's appointed a time of judgment through the man whom he raised from the dead. There you have it. Those are details. They're clear. They're simple. He just told the entire Bible. He went Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. 22? 22. He just did that. In a very short time. So it's clear, sometimes when we have an early starting point, we don't even know how to even say things. Just kind of the farther back you're starting, you might want to think the higher up you want to fly. Okay, Or you might end up talking all day and being still in Genesis 6. So if you're going to start, maybe if you're starting way back, fly a little higher with your detail, but be clear with it. And by the way, he doesn't balk from saying, you're wrong, people. He does that. He says, look, you call yourselves religious. You have this unknown God. I know who it is. You don't. And he sets off. True evangelism is ultimately going to say to somebody, you are wrong. It takes wisdom to figure out how to say it. But if they weren't wrong, you wouldn't be evangelizing. Right? You'd be sharing the joy of the faith with someone else. If you're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to say, I have an unknown God that I want to tell you about. And you don't know who he is. The third thing you see here is his respectful and contextual style. He's very respectful with whom he's preaching with. By the way, he chooses their forum. He's in the Areopagus. He's kind of on this high hill speaking to this forum. He's respectful. It's, he's not really over-complimenting them to say you're in every way religious. In fact, I think kind of in his mind he's chuckling as he says it. But he's re- recognizing them for who he is. And he even does things twice, twice in this kind of story, his message, he quotes Greek poets. The first time, we use it as scripture all the time. We love this verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. What a beautiful verse the Lord has written. It's a poem about Zeus. I want to let you know that. And the second one, and we are all his offspring. Another poem about Zeus. He's he's using these things to bring them in, to invite them in. He's being being of them and he's he's connecting with them in in places that are appropriate. I, I, I think that's fine and that's good. You, each of you, is contextual in certain circles. There's people that you can reach that others can't reach and vice versa. Be thoughtful about the context and be respectful when possible of the people you're receiving. They will will feel your respect and continue to listen if you respect them. I don't mean act as though you respect them. I mean respect them as though God made them like he made you and you may be speaking to the next Paul the Apostle. The goal in my life would be to be the worst Christian I know. I mean, imagine if everyone we shared with became better Christians than us. So hold them in high regard. God made them, and he has love for them, and he sent you to them. So respect them. And then finally, the goal. 
there's a constant goal when Paul speaks that no matter how little or how much people know, he genuinely ends up here. So when he was in the church in Thessalonica last Sunday, we talked about this. For three Sabbaths, he stayed there arguing and giving proof that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. That's what it was said in Thessalonica. You can imagine he went and did the same thing in Berea. When he was down in the marketplace, he fell in contention with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Why? Because he was talking about this weird, it says, or maybe he's talking about foreign gods. And then the text says here, one of the reasons they were saying that is because he was talking about salvation and the resurrection. Paul ends up at the resurrection pretty consistently. The very next town he goes to, Corinth, when he writes them their first letter, he says this, I've decided to know this and this alone, Christ and him crucified. That's the next town on the, on the, on the trip. There's a, there's a goal here. Paul's not trying to kind of give just a kind of a, a little bit of like a spiritual pick-me-up, like God loves you, and then you hope one day that maybe you get part two, like God's going to judge you. You know, how come that part never shows up again? Paul is set on finding the right starting point and figuring out the right level of detail, but the detail covers from God made you God made all of us, God cares, God will judge, and he's given away. And the way is inescapably the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It just, we can't extract that from the story. And you wonder, what's going to happen when you say the word resurrection? People will sneer at you. They'll guffaw. <laughs> right? They'll get very interested in what's on TV. That's what happens to Paul. He speaks in the Areopagus. People sneer at him. Ha! Resurrection? That's the world is going to do that. If you go in as a known, then it takes the pressure off. The world is going to scoff the resurrection of Christ. But some won't. Some will desire to know more. And they'll follow you and they'll say, tell us more about this. And you will. And I think if we said that the sneering in Athens made it a failure, we would be diminishing Dionysius and we would be diminishing Demaris and a number of others. Paul came to the city, he preached the gospel, and people came to know Jesus. Which in some ways is more than anyone who doesn't speak. So, don't be fearful of what happens when you begin to talk about the resurrection of the man whom God sent. It is the power unto eternal life. It's my hope this morning. What I'm excited about this morning is you get to see it done twice. That's really special. This is always good days when other people speak the gospel. So I'm grateful for that. I hope this encourages you to speak. And I'm not charging you to Go out and say it one specific way. I'm charging you this morning to see what God sees, to feel how he feels about it, and allow that to motivate you to speak the word.